Welcome to another Church History installment, and today we're going to talk about the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And as you can see there, there's an image from a current edition of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, and then there's a, um, a graphic that shows the skeletons of different uh, apes, and man is included among the apes by the evolutionists. That particular drawing was uh, not done by Darwin. It was done by another scientist who was an evolutionist, and uh, who, uh, uh, Thomas Huxley. We'll be talking about the Huxley family. There were um, more than one Huxleys who were uh, very much humanist um, scientists, and uh, they really advanced a lot of these ideas. Um, and then uh, you can also see, again, this is, I, I just took these off of Amazon, these book covers. You can get a copy of a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. And we'll be talking about the quest for the historical Jesus and what that means. And if you, know, if you watch PBS every once in a while, like I like to watch documentaries on PBS every once in a while, they will run a quest for historical Jesus type documentary. We'll talk about that approach to looking at Jesus. So the fundamentalist uh, modernist controversy, there's a lot to cover here. We're only gonna get started today. Uh, but the roots of the controversy began as, as a result of the emergence of higher criticism in German Protestant theological circles and in new scientific theories. Higher criticism, or the historical critical method, could be applied to any ancient texts or literature. In biblical studies, higher criticism investigates the books of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament and compares them to any other texts written about the same time. Have, uh, has anybody here heard the phrase higher criticism? Some have, okay, a, a good deal. Um, and one example of higher criticism that we can start off with, um, and again, this is, you know, you could substitute the word modern Bible scholarship. It's, it's really pretty much the same idea. Uh, where you attempt to understand a book like the Book of Revelation in its first century historical context, by identifying its literary genre within Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature. And I'll just interject here, um, at a lot of secular universities today, many of them offer, and I don't know what departments they would be a part of, but many of them offer courses in the Bible as literature. So that kind of approach is simply looking at the Bible not as the word of God, but it's just another literary work. It's right up there with Shakespeare and other uh, literary works. In regard to the Gospels, higher criticism deals with the synoptic problem, contrasting and comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So a lot of times in this approach, you're taking the three synoptic Gospels and you're saying, well, Mark doesn't include stuff that shows up in Matthew and Luke, so why is that, and does that render Mark suspect in some way? In some cases, such as with several Pauline epistles, higher criticism either confirms or challenges 
the traditional or received understanding of authorship. So with New Testament works, there's a lot of questions about did, did Paul really write this letter to the Philippians or the Ephesians? Or was it really written by someone else and he just pretended to be Paul? Things like that. Higher criticism understands the New Testament texts within historical context. That is, they are not absolutely true. Again, the, the perspective is we're not studying the word of God. We are studying literature. You know, it's, it, it, it's like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It's like writings of Aristotle and Plato. It's just more literature. They're just writings that express a tradition. For a higher critic, the truth lies in the historical context of the writing, not within the text itself. Higher criticism was developed into specialized forms of analysis, source criticism, form criticism, and others. Source criticism is the search for the original sources which lie behind a given biblical text. Form criticism breaks the Bible down into sections which are analyzed and categorized by genres such as prose or verse, letters, law codes, court archives, and so on. And then the form critic theorizes uh, on this particular piece of literature, sits in Leben, setting in life. What was the context, the setting for this document? And, um, you know, what was going on in the history of the tradition at the time? So looking at tradition history, it's another type of form criticism and it aims at looking at the way the different sections were included in the Bible. Um, and uh, especially they're, they're especially focused on how the books of the Bible transitioned from being purely handed down orally, and then at some point were written down, and how were those written texts handed down from there. Higher criticism began as an approach to biblical and theological studies in primarily German universities and seminaries. And there are a lot of different names I could put up on, uh, the, uh, in the presentation, but uh, you know we really don't have time to go through all of the higher critics. But one of the most important was Friedrich Schliermacher who lived from 1768 to 1834. He was a German Reformed theologian, philosopher, and Bible scholar known for his attempt to reconcile the criticisms of the Enlightenment with traditional Protestant Christianity. Although educated in a Moravian school, remember the Moravians were evangelical pietists, uh, in Eastern Germany, Schliermarker I know I'm going to butcher this name, <laughs> experienced increasing doubts about pietistic Christianity. His father reluctantly gave him permission to enter the University of Hall, which had already abandoned pietism and adopted the rationalist spirit of liberal Christianity. As a theology student, Schliermacher pursued an independent course of reading and neglected the study of the Old Testament and of Greek and Hebrew. He attended the lectures of J.S. Semler, another higher critic, became acquainted with the techniques of historical criticism of the New Testament, 
and then Eberhard, from whom he acquired a love of the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. So he was getting a thorough going, rationalistic, enlightenment-type education at this point. Schleiermacher also studied, studied the writings of Immanuel Kant and Jacobi and began to apply ideas from the Greek philosophers to a reconstruction of Kant's philosophical system. Now, skepticism became the guiding principle for his approach and if you recall, when we were talking about Rene Descartes, the French philosopher and mathematician, he always approached everything from a basis of skepticism. His, his starting point for ever studying any branch of knowledge was to be skeptical. So here's this idea of skepticism. Skepticism is nothing new. Skepticism was originated by the ancient Greeks. You know, the, the skeptic school was exactly that. They were testing everything. They were challenging every idea. So this idea of beginning from a stage of skepticism, that's your starting point. This is Schleiermacher's approach as well. By 1787, he wrote a letter to his father in which he confessed his abandonment of the Christian faith. He wrote, I cannot believe that he who called himself the son of man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. So his skepticism has led him out of Christianity. Liberal theology or Christian modernism is a movement that interprets Christian teaching by taking into consideration modern knowledge, science, and ethics. It emphasizes the importance of reason and experience over doctrinal authority. Liberal Christians viewed their theology as an alternative to both atheistic rationalism and theologies based on the traditional interpretations of external authority, such as the Bible or sacred tradition. Now, by the late 1800s, liberal Christianity had embraced the Darwinian theory of the evolution of man. <clears throat> Englishman Charles Darwin had published On the Origin of Species in 1859. Darwinism is a theory of evolutionary biology developed by, of course, Charles Darwin and others. And the theory states that all species of organisms arise and develop through the natural selection of small inherited variations that increase the individual's ability to compete, survive, and reproduce. Darwin's work promoting scientific naturalism over theology directly challenged the creation account in Genesis in the Bible, where fully formed specific categories of plants, animals, and man himself fully formed are created ex nihilo instantly. And ex nihilo is Latin for out of nothing. Darwin's work on the origin of species, first published in 1859, went through six editions. And of course, uh, Darwinism is an evolutionary concept, um, and it was pioneered, developed by Charles Darwin and others. And this is a picture of Darwin in about 1854, and he, he was, at that time, he was uh, working on getting the book into publication. 
There were other scientists working at this time who had similar evolutionary ideas, and um, Darwin collaborated with some of them. Basic ideas of evolution by natural selection, as defined by Darwin, more individuals are produced each generation than can survive. Phenotypes are the observable characteristics or traits of an organism, such as eye color or the height of an animal. Phenotypic variation exists among individuals and the variation is heritable. So in other words, if I have hazel eyes, my children could have hazel eyes. Um, so these, these traits that we see in organisms can be passed down to succeeding generations. Now, those individuals with heritable traits better suited to the environment will survive. And you probably heard the term survival of the fittest. Okay, this comes out of Darwin's thinking. When reproductive isolation occurs, new species will form. And this is termed the transmutation of species. When examining Darwin's ideas, it is important to keep in mind what Darwin didn't include in his work. Darwin believed that his study of the natural world, in other words, plants and animals and so on, showed that all species of life have descended from a common ancestor. But he could not say what that common ancestor was or how it came into existence. Now, if it's true that all species of life have descended from a common ancestor, how did that occur? You know, if we start off as an amoeba, and then from there, the amoeba gets more sophisticated and develops into other forms, and from there continues to develop, and eventually a tadpole emerges, and we've got frogs and toads, <laughs> and, when, and then a fish kind of shows up out of, out of this um, randomness. So how long did it take? How, you know, how long does this process take? Of course, Darwin could only guess at the answer to these questions. Darwin was a naturalist who did not derive his theories from scientific experiments conducted and tested in a laboratory under controlled conditions. He made observations and detailed studies of various plants and animals, and from those observations, based on his assumptions about how different species came into existence, developed his theory. And he also thought about selective breeding, okay? You see this in agriculture, in farming, and uh, animal husbandry, as it's called. Um, artificial selection. Let's say you're interested in breeding certain traits into dogs. And so you start off with a particular, maybe you want a really superior hunting dog. And you start off with a good hunting breed, and you keep selectively, you know, breeding more and more generations of dogs that have better and better hunting abilities. Okay, so this is an, uh, an artificial approach to selection, selection of breeding stock. Um, now, Darwin theorized that if this can happen, you know, if, if human beings can, you know, intentionally breed animals to have certain characteristics, could not this have also happened on its own, just, you know, uh, it just happened. So in other words, looking at artificial selection, he then theorizes 
that natural selection must have occurred. You know, if all animals, if all life uh, start off as in a very simple one-celled form and develop from there, then there must be some kind of a, a process by which better traits are encouraged and the weaker, you know, the weaker uh, individuals kind of die off and don't reproduce as much. And so that more and more you get, you know, this better organism. Although raised as an Anglican, Darwin came to reject Anglican beliefs and teachings during his voyage around the world on the ship HMS Beagle from December 1831 to October 1836. And if you've ever watched any documentaries about Darwin, you know he went to South America, he went to the Galapagos Islands, and on the Galapagos, which was a very isolated place, he saw many unusual animals. And a lot of his studies uh, on that island helped him develop these ideas. And he was also influenced by other English thinkers such as Thomas Malthus and Charles Lyell. Malthus speculated that an increase in a nation's food production improved the well-being of the population. But the improvement was temporary because it led to population growth which in turn restored the original per capita consumption and production levels. So in other words, the idea is if, if a nation is able, you know, if a group of people is able to increase their food supply, automatically the population is going to grow. And Malthus's ideas have a lot of holes in them, so to speak, but they are nonetheless very influential today. And there are a lot of people, for example, uh, just recently, I think it was the UN or some international body announced that the earth had reached um, about 8 billion people in terms of total population. And so, there, you know, and, and a lot of people are concerned that there are going to be too many people, uh, the planet won't be able to support them, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to do things to control population growth. And a lot of this comes out of, really comes out of Malthus's uh, thinking. And here is, uh, these are portraits of Sir Charles Lyell, prominent ge English geologist, and Thomas Malthus, who was an economist and philosopher, and he was also a clergyman. So again, coming out of the Enlightenment into the 19th century. Malthus thought that humans had a propensity to utilize abundance for population growth rather than for maintaining a high standard of living, a view that has become known as the Malthusian trap. In other words, he's thinking as people become richer, so to speak, more prosperous, they're just going to have bigger families. They're not going to restrict the size of their families and keep their standard of living high. The standard of living will be diluted, so to speak. And he theorized that populations tend to grow until the lower classes suffer hardship, want, and greater susceptibility to famine and disease, a view that is sometimes referred to as a Malthusian catastrophe. Malthus failed to consider how technological, scientific, and social change and progress, most notably during the Industrial Revolution, contributed to meeting basic needs 
and increase the supply of goods and services. And as we'll talk about later, Malthusian ideas and evolutionary ideas tended to contribute to the development of eugenics and the idea of controlling populations. Sir Charles Lyell was a Scottish geologist who demonstrated the power of known natural causes in explaining the Earth's history. He wrote The Principles of Geology, and that circulated widely um, in England and elsewhere, also in the United States. And his idea was things that happened in the past and the processes that occurred are just like they are today. So natural processes in the past, nothing is different than how things are today. And his idea is that geology and other parts of science proceed according to uniformitarianism. In other words, all processes are the same no matter what time period you're considering. And this was contrasted with catastrophism, which was popular in Europe at the time. That is, catastrophic events um, such as, yeah, and we, we see this even today, major volcanoes, when they erupt, they can cause serious catastrophic um, uh, spillover effects um, in the ecology, in the climate, and so on. Um, but Lyell was like, well, really, you know, yes, volcanoes happen in the past as well, and how volcanoes function and, and how they go through their life cycle, how they did that in the past is exactly like what we see in the present. Now, Lyell began to um, put forward this idea that we need to have an understanding of something he called deep time for understanding the earth and the environment. And what is deep time? It's simply things happen over a very long period of time. It could be hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. So all these geologic and biologic processes occur very slowly over long periods of time. And the key phrase here is the present is the key to the past. And Lyell didn't really invent this theory. This was, um, uh, he kind of popularized it and applied it to the study of geology. But this really came out of um, a Scottish thinker named David Hume. And he said that all inferences from experience suppose that the future will resemble the past. Big assumption. Scottish geologist James Hutton echoed this idea in 1788 when he wrote that from what has actually been, we have data for, for concluding with regard to that which is to happen thereafter. Just a more flowery way of saying the present is the key to the past. What has happened in the past is what we see happening now, and there's really you know, nothing different going on. And all, you know, a lot of these geologic processes and biologic processes and evolution, they occur over long periods of time. Of course, this point of view would totally reject something like the worldwide flood as depicted in Genesis. Um, and as Genesis depicts the flood, uh, this event radically changed the Earth's geology. It radically uh, changed the atmosphere, the, the climate. Now, postulating a very old Earth, 
subject to more or less constant natural processes in the past that are still in operation today, operating at similar intensities, creates an excellent backdrop for explaining the development of various species of life according to evolutionary ideas. In particular, the transmutation of species as a theory is enhanced when trying to explain how humans, or homo sapiens, as a scientist would call humans, came into existence. At university, Darwin studied William Paley's natural theology, or evidences of the existence and attributes of the deity, published in 1802. That work made an argument for what we today would probably call intelligent design. In other words, uh, God acting through the laws of nature has created all things. Then he read preliminary discourse on the study of natural philosophy. And, and when you see the word natural philosophy, the, uh, the phrase rather, that's, that's a term really, today we would say science. Okay, but back then they called it natural philosophy. And so the idea is to understand scientific laws through inductive reasoning based on observation. That's empiricism, okay? That's a big thing, again, coming out of the Enlightenment. We're gonna study the world around us and based on our studies, we're going to develop theories about how things came into existence or how natural processes work. And Darwin corresponded and worked with other naturalists to extend and develop his ideas. But Darwin was just one of many scientists and naturalists who worked on evolutionary thinking. Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, outlined a hypothesis of transmutation of species in the 1790s, and the French naturalist Lamarck published a more developed theory in 1809. Now, both Lamarck and, and Erasmus Darwin believed in spontaneous generation. In other words, simple forms of life just emerge. They just spring into existence spontaneously. Life can come from non-life. Well, how can that be? Well, a long, long, long time ago, we weren't around to observe it. It happened. Um, and then the idea of natural selection um, and you know, as, as, as the organisms reproduce, um, the inherited you know, changes, adaptations, and beyond adaptations, actually changing into other life forms, basically, um, you know, is determined by this idea of natural selection. The best traits are passed on, the organisms with more weaker traits or less desirable traits will gradually die off. Spontaneous generation is simply the idea that life could come spontaneously into existence without a creator. Perhaps the most challenging of all the theories concerns human evolution. According to Darwin and the other scientists working in England and Europe at this time, human evolution is the, the process within the history of primates that led to the emergence of Homo sapiens as a distinct, distinct species of the hominid family, which includes the great apes. So human beings were not created by God, ex nihilo, fully formed man. Instead, they evolved from apes over a very long period of time. And of course, 
this is totally the opposite of what we see in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> now, this particular drawing, which I had at the beginning, actually comes from Thomas Huxley, and it was reproduced in a book published in 2003, Evolution, the History of an Idea. And Huxley, who worked closely with Charles Darwin, and they were always discussing things and talking and exchanging ideas. He, you know, he said, let's look at the skeletons of these apes and let's put man's skeleton in there. Now, don't they all look really similar? Okay, so if you don't want to accept the idea that God created human beings, if instead you want some sort of evolutionary idea, you know, you can pick this class of animals, the apes, and you can say, gee, there are so many characteristics that are similar. Is it too far-fetched to think that man came from apes? Well, I would say yes. <laughs> um, you know, despite, and, and this is the idea, you know, you, this is a pitfall, I think, of inductive reasoning. So you're studying all these different, you know, life forms, and, and then you conclude just on the basis of similarities because you have this preconception and, you know, kind of a, you know, you're predisposed to thinking along evolutionary lines. Okay, sure, we can say that man came from apes and how did that happen? Well, it happened over millennia. Um, okay, and there you are. Um, but it's, sim I, I, and I want to stress, you know, this is a way of thinking that begins with presuppositions assumptions, and based on the biases inherent in those presuppositions and assumptions, you end up with this kind of result. Man is simply another animal. And this idea that man is simply an animal has, um, has um, had really um, terrible outworkings in how human civilization is today. Um, so I, this is a slide that has a lot of technical terms and I, I'm not going to get too deep into this, um, but essentially they're saying, let's start out 15 to 20 million years ago. And then, uh, you know, over about 6 million years, another life form, African apes come forth. And then from there, orangutans. And then another group of animals uh, develops. They developed about eight to nine million years ago. And it's, it's got all kinds of different, um, you know, we've got humans, we've got chimpanzees. Um, I, you know, I don't really have time to get into things about Neanderthals and other stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, these groups kind of separated out about four to seven million years ago. And then we end up with man as we more or less know him today. And um, their theory, theories say that an anatomically modern humans first appeared in Africa approximately 300,000 years ago. And, you know, they, um, they do a lot of archeological and geological research and uh, Apparently, they've got 
skeletons and bones and parts of bones to support their theories. <clears throat> Darwin's evolutionary theory, humanistic enlightenment philosophies as applied to Christianity, and higher critical methods of analyzing the Bible all combined to mount, perhaps, the biggest challenge to traditional Protestant Christianity in all of church history up to that time in the West. The challenge emerged in Europe, but would soon come to America to challenge the American Protestant and Roman Catholic traditions. Increasing denominational fragmentation within American Protestantism combined with liberalism created a crisis of faith for many American Christians by the beginning of the 20th century. American botanist Asa Gray arranged to have The Origin of Species published in the US. He was a Christian, but a good friend to Darwin and staunchly supported him. Gray also attempted to convince Darwin in his letters that design was inherent in all forms of life and to return to his faith. He saw nature as filled with unmistakable and irresistible indications of design and argued that God himself is the very last irreducible causal factor, and hence the source of all evolutionary change. And what, we, what we're seeing here with Gray's thinking is he's moving towards what came to be known as theistic evolution, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Darwin agreed that his theories were not at all necessarily atheistical, but was unable to share Gray's belief. So he, wasn't, he had abandoned Christianity, you know, it's like, well, I can't believe in Christianity anymore, but I'm not going to be an atheist. And later, Darwin basically described himself as an agnostic. In other words, he didn't know. Darwin wrote, I feel most deeply that the whole subject is too profound for the human intellect. A dog might as well speculate on the mind of Newton. And this is taken from a letter he wrote to Asa Gray. Gray is a critical link in the history of American intellectualism and his writings that explain how religion and science were not necessarily mutually exclusive have been considered his supreme accomplishment, thereby providing a way for believers in creationism to consider Darwin's ideas. Some Christians would attempt to reconcile biblical Christianity and evolution. And this concept of theistic evolution is, is their way of doing that. And basically, this says, God creates through the laws of nature. And theistic evolutionists basically are trying to reconcile and make compatible you know, religious ideas with the findings of modern evolutionary science. It's not a scientific theory. It's simply, I guess, another belief system. Um, so, you know, different theistic evolutionists will have different describe, you know, this is how God could have worked through natural selection or evolution or changes in species. And then they debate how, how much does God really intervene in these processes?
whoops. Theistic evolutionists generally believe in the prevailing cosmological model. In other words, the universe came into existence about 13.8 billion years ago, and they believe in the fine-tuned universe. The occurrence of life in the universe is very sensitive to the values of certain fundamental physical constants and that the observed values are, for some reason, improbable. They also believe in evolution and natural selection. They don't believe in any special supernatural intervention once evolution gets going. Humans are a result of this evolutionary process, but humans are unique and the universe, the universality of morality and the continuous search for God among all human cultures defy evolutionary explanations and point to our spiritual nature. Theistic evolution came to be accepted by many in the mainline Protestant denominations and by the Roman Catholic Church, and today a lot of evangelicals hold to it. However, a major problem in the theory concerns how humans can be descended from apes but have a soul uh, Generally speaking, animals don't really have a soul in the way that humans do. Humans also have self-consciousness or self-awareness, and they have a mind. Do apes have such faculties as thought, imagination, memory, will, and sensation? And if so, to what degree? And of course, uh, you know, many, I, I will have to say at this point, Many, uh, many animals within the great ape family, chimpanzees, gorillas, are highly intelligent. You know, and scientists have done uh, work with chimpanzees, and they claim that they have taught chimpanzees language and how to communicate. Uh, there was one scientist who um, taught a chimpanzee sign language and claimed that the chimpanzee learned it and understood it and communicated in a meaningful way using sign language. Um, you know, certainly there are a lot of animals that are highly intelligent. That doesn't necessarily mean that we evolve from them, however. And so the, the whole, the idea of the development of speech and written forms of communications in humans, how do you explain that? We see nothing else like that in any other life form on the planet. Uh, according to evolutionary biologists, language is thought to have gradually di diverged from earlier primate communication systems when early homonyms acquired the ability to form a theory of mind and shared intentionality. Again, according to them, this just happened. It happened over a long period of time, but it happened. Um, and then evolutionary biologists will also say, well, you know, humans e evolved uh, and, and their brains grew and with larger brains, higher intelligence, and, um, you know, evolutionary linguists say, well, you know, these, these life forms had to communicate somehow, and then they began cooperating. And there are a lot of evolutionary bio biologists today who study animal behavior and they point to cooperation among groups of animals in gathering food and solving problems. And I watched a documentary on PBS one time about crows. Yes, crows are highly intelligent. You wouldn't think that they are, but they are. They're pretty smart. Okay, 
animals, you know, there's some species that are very smart. There are other animals that are really, really dumb. <laughs> you know, <laughs> does that support evolution? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. By the start of the 20th century, American Protestant Christianity was at a crossroads. Liberalism was well entrenched in the seminaries, mainline Protestant denominations such as the Episcopal Church, some Presbyterian denominations, Unitarians and Congregationalists, all embracing new ways of thinking, evolution, science, you know, all these things are great. And the idea of biblical inerrancy or infallibility and the, the principle of sola scriptura was viewed by many liberals as simply idolatry of the Bible. You know, you're holding up the Bible when it's not really worth as much as you think it is. And, you know, this is essentially a form of idol worship. Higher criticism with its questioning of whether biblical accounts were based on older or newer texts or whether the Gospels recorded the actual words of Jesus. Most higher critics will say, Jesus didn't say most of the things that the gospel writers say he said. You know, they put words in his mouth according to them. And this, this approach replaced the literal, literal reading of the text. The use of these methods of biblical in interpretation led liberals to conclude that none of the New Testament writings can be said to be apostolic in the sense in which, in which it has been traditionally held to be so. And so liberals turned to a new approach. Let's find the historical Jesus. We're gonna reconstruct the life and teachings of Jesus using critical historical methods in contrast to, to, to traditional religious interpretations. We're gonna look at the historical and cultural context in which Jesus lived. Historical Jesus scholars typically contend that he was simply a Galilean Jew who lived in a time of messianic and apocalyptic expectations. So right away you can begin to see how <clears throat> the approach is we're not going to see Jesus as both human and divine, we're just going to see him as a man. Some scholars credit the apocalyptic declarations of the Gospels to him, while others portray his kingdom of God as simply a moral one and not apocalyptic or, you know, apocalyptic means unveiling, sh uh, showing forth. Um, so, you know, there's not going to be a literal kingdom of God. There's not even really a symbolic kingdom of God. It's just we can boil it all down to good moral teachings. Now, nearly all modern scholars today, Christian or not, accept that there was a person named Jesus, as we know him in the Bible, that he really did exist. Um, <clears throat> the historian Josephus wrote about Jesus, and the Roman historian Tacitus wrote about Jesus, Very brief, just really a brief mention. But, um, you know, most modern scholarship, uh, archaeological finds and so forth, Everybody's pretty sure that, yes, there was a man named Jesus that, you know, you can identify with the Jesus in the Bible. Um, but what he taught and what he means for history and Christianity, of course, is debated and disputed. And the higher critics more or less dismiss 
Um, you know, again, it's, he, he taught, he had good moral teachings, but we're going to dismiss this divine stuff. That's not real. And so there's a major focus on examine, examining the authenticity, accuracy, and authorship of the books of the New Testament. And then there comes into focus the historical reliability of the Gospels. How reliable are these works? Were they written by who supposedly they were written by? Um, or were they really written by other people? <clears throat> when were they written? Uh, were they written much later after you know, 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, et cetera, et cetera? So there's a lot of you know, debate about the historical reliability of the Gospels. Modern higher critics consider that very little in the four canonical gospels can be considered historically reliable. So the quest for the historical Jesus became a lot more popular, especially within German Protestant uh, higher critic circles. And David Strauss, uh, a, a German theologian, wrote Das Leben Jesu, The Life of Jesus in 1835. And he expresses his conclusion that Jesus did exist, but the New Testament Christians, influenced by the Old Testament, and especially by Daniel's Messiah, you know, read the book of Daniel, interpret it, okay, here's Jesus. And essentially that they made him into a god. Yes, he was a man. Yes, he existed. He's not the son of God. Essentially, his disciples made him into the son of God. And then in 1906, Albert Schweitzer published his quest of the historical Jesus, first in German, and then it was translated into English. Very popular work, even to this day. You can buy it on Amazon. Schweitzer takes the position that the life and thinking of Jesus must be interpreted in the light of Jesus' own convictions, which he characterizes as those of late Jewish eschatology. For Schweitzer, Jesus defies any attempt at understanding him by making parallels to the ways of thinking or feelings of modern man. In other words, he lives so far back in the past, we can't, you know, we can study the historical Jesus, but to apply uh, his teachings to the present day, well, you know, things are so different now. <laughs> In Schweitzer's view, Jesus genuinely believed that his ministry would bring about the end of history and did not see any prolonged period elapsing between his time on earth and God's final judgment. So his interpretation of the passages in the New Testament in, uh, where Jesus is talking about you know, the end times, um, you know, this, this is, the, the world didn't end. It's still going on, so that must mean what Jesus was teaching was not true. And again, uh, the quest of the historical Jesus is very popular even to this day, and it is essentially the last word in historical Jesus study for decades. Now, recently, as I said, you know, even today, you know, if you go on YouTube or other streaming sources, or you know any place you can find documentaries, PBS, and so on. You can you know if you type in "quest for historical Jesus," you can find lots of documentaries. And if you listen to what they you know the the commentators in those documentaries, they are really focused on let's establish 
the historical accuracy that Jesus lived. Is he God? Is he, you know, what is he exactly? Well, he was a Jew, and, you know, he might have thought of himself as the son of God, but, yeah, that's just what he thought. So, um, and this, this continues to this day in liberal circles. And essentially, the idea is, let, let's take God completely out of the picture. Let's take God out of the Bible. It's just a bunch of historical writings Probably much of, of them are not factual. You know, there's some factual stuff. A lot of it's not factual. But the Bible is, for them, the Bible is not the source of wisdom and knowledge. It is not the word of God. It is not infallible. You know, if you encounter people or, um, you know, sometimes there are books or, again, documentaries where people, people claim that the Bible has lots of... Um, you know, places where it contradicts itself. And, you know, again, uh, there are people that make a big deal about that. Um, most, mostly what that boils down to is not reading the text correctly. Um, you can easily resolve 99% of the so-called, um, you know, inconsistencies by understanding the text and it helps if you know Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because a lot of times, you know, some of the problems have to do with how the text was translated. Better translations help us to understand the Bible better. That is certainly true. Well, that concludes what I have today, uh, beginning on this uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. And there's going to be quite a few more parts because essentially we are still in this phase. We are still, you know, we live in a society where, um, you know, if you believe in the Bible and you believe God is real, if you believe he created the earth, you're nuts. Um, <laughs> we, we have, you know, we have reaped the fruit of the enlightenment in many different ways, the skepticism of these scientists, uh, the extent to which science has exceeded its boundaries, in my opinion, and become scientism, almost a new religion, where anything a scientist says is gospel truth over what any other commentator or book would say. Um, and unfortunately, as we'll see, a lot of these ideas about evolution, um, about it, Malthus's ideas about overpopulation, have played a big impact in the 20th and the 21st centuries. All right, thanks very much for your attention.